0: From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. We're almost done with 2020, and this is our last show of the year. With a lot to reflect on and much to get to in 2021, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers are joined by NBC5 anchor Brian Curtis and Dallas Morning News Washington Bureau Chief Todd Gilman. Plus, just before Christmas, the city of Dallas announced the hiring of a new police chief. Eddie Garcia comes to North Texas from San Jose, California, where he served as police chief for five years. Vince Sims interviewed Garcia on NBC5 last week. We'll have that conversation for you, too. And a quick reminder, we won't have a show next week, January 3rd, before we return just in time for the 87th Texas Legislature, which gets started on the 12th. This year was certainly one for the history books. From the impeachment of the president and social justice protests to the death of an iconic Supreme Court justice and a consequential presidential election. But there was one story that impacted the world more than anything seen in years, COVID-19. As the virus continues to surge, the distribution of a vaccine has begun and will continue to be a story into next year. But before we get to what's to come in 2021, Julie, Gromer, Brian, and Todd look back at 2020.
1: All right, let's start with a look back at the big stories of 2020. And of course, Gromer, we have to start with COVID-19.
2: Yeah, it's kind of the story of the century and it impacted everything from politics to the way we live all over the world. And it shaped, I think the presidential election and the politics uh, around that. So the vaccine is here. That was sort of a big moment at the end of the year, but certainly throughout the year, President Trump's handling of the pandemic and things related to it, kind of define where we are now.
1: Yeah, Todd, can you touch on that from Washington D.C.?
3: I, I would say that the theme that runs through it is denial. Uh, you know, back in February, President Trump was saying, "This is fine. We have it totally under control. We've only got a dozen cases. It's going to go away. This election is is unlosable because the economy is going great guns." And then here we are, post election day, still in denial. There's no question that COVID-19 clouded the election and and really just colored the whole year.
1: And, Brian, COVID-19 here in Texas as well. Yeah, guys, I mean, this was the year of COVID, right? I
4: I was trying to think of a story that has had the impact that this one has, and, and I can't come up with one. It has touched absolutely everyone and everything in 2020. And remember, guys, Back in the spring, we thought at this point in the year, we might be on the other side of this. And clearly we are not. We have some of the worst months probably still ahead of us in the COVID crisis.
1: And COVID-19 playing a big part in the presidential election. Todd Gilman, there is a president-elect. You've done some covering of him in Washington.
3: Yes, so we just saw Vice President Pence get his inoculation, Um, President-elect Biden and his wife are gonna get their vaccine shots on Monday and Kamala Harris and her husband a week later. The rollout of the vaccines uh, has finally come, if it had come maybe a month or two before election day, as President Trump had hoped. It might have been a bit of a different story on election day. And he probably was right to resent the fact that he couldn't squeeze that, that uh, you know, out of the stone in time. But uh, President-elect Biden, it's gonna be job one for months and months and months of his administration uh, to get those shots into the arms of Americans, get us to that at least 7%, 70% uh, immunity around the country so that the schools can really open and, and the economy can really reopen.
1: Brian, you and I sat together on election night where, you know, nothing was decided that night. You know, we had heard before, hey, you guys probably won't know election night, but that really did become a reality. Let's talk a little bit about the presidential election here in Texas. Yeah, Julie, I mean, I I think we
4: knew that we weren't going to know that night. The question in our minds was how long was this going to drag out, and I think most people are surprised that some people are still talking about this and and questioning the results of the election and I think we've all gotten to the point now where I think we've accepted the fact that there are going to be some people who just just never accept the results of the election
2: yeah and let's talk about something a long long time ago the Texas Democratic primary pre-COVID remember there was some doubt before South Carolina if Joe Biden would even be the nominee, and that that really extraordinary Texas primary, and Todd, you came down to Dallas for that, where where uh, you had the extraordinary uh, rallying around Biden by, by Pete Buttigieg, the former South Bend mayor, and Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota. That seems so long ago, but Texas played such a role in the presidential election,
1: and that's almost a memory now, a distant memory major changes in the Supreme Court after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Of course,
2: Trump, another pick for the president on the Supreme
1: Court. It didn't help
2: him much, you know, when it mattered for him, which was to, to keep his presidential aspirations alive after he lost the election. But, yeah, Trump's legacy is going to be the appointment of so many Supreme Court justices. And that's a big deal. That's the reason why some conservatives held their nose and voted for him, Ted Cruz included, one of the reasons uh, at the time Senator Ted Cruz gave for coming around and endorsing the president back in 2016 was the Supreme Court list he put out, so yeah, very significant year in terms of that
1: and also calls for social change this year. Brian, we want to start with you on that because you attended the funeral for George Floyd. Right, I was in Houston
4: and the sense of anger, the sense of frustration and the sense of determination there, it was all really palpable, guys. And, and you got the sense that this was a moment where the black community especially had decided something has to change. And. And to Gromer's point that he made just a second ago about when Joe Biden arrived in South Carolina, his campaign was on life support. It was the black community that saved his candidacy. And I think going forward that if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris don't do something really significant on this issue of social justice, the black community is going to feel uh, very betrayed here. So I expect that we will see some real substantive action here on this issue.
1: And Todd, you know, we've seen protests, we've seen events all over the nation, including in Washington, D.C.
3: You know, in so many ways, apart from COVID, uh, the George Floyd the police brutality issue uh, animated this election uh, to an enormous degree. The way the president deployed federal agents, federal officers, and and National Guard troops uh, to cities to to clear out the park across from the White House, with, uh, with uh, chemical dispersants and, and uh, rubber bullets and just a, a real show of force and even deploying uh, the, the top generals to walk across or bringing the top general to walk across the park with him in this victorious show of force, holding the Bible. Um, very symbolic, very much an affront to people around the country, particularly of color, but many others also who readily understand that this is a huge problem in our country—the way that um, minority suspects are treated much more brutally and much less respectfully—and and often suffer, you know, fatalities at the hands of police around the country—a huge animating factor—and it's one of the one of the issues that I find really curious. Why President Trump and many of his supporters now, even now after the election day, find it so hard to fathom that. uh, President-elect Biden did so well in urban centers around the country, well, of course they did well in urban centers around the country, which of course are overwhelmingly democratic. These are places that have been most affected by the the uprisings, by the the pushback, by the uh, problem of police brutality, and also the most insulted by the way that President Trump handled it. So really that, that fueled a lot of what we saw on election
1: day as well. Let's look ahead to twenty twenty one. First of all let's start with President elect Joe Biden naming his cabinet. Gromer.
2: No Texans and I'm curious to to hear what Todd has to say about this. No no Texans in the cabinet. But he's getting credit for having one of the most diverse cabinets in history and I think that will do well for him as he puts out that message that he wants to be the president for everybody.
3: Well, I think that's right, it's very diverse. I happened to be in Wilmington, Delaware the other day when Biden uh, introduced Pete Buttigieg as his transportation secretary, the first openly gay uh, member of a presidential cabinet. It is very diverse in certain ways. You've got the people who uh, come from the Obama administration and then you also have people who didn't come from the Obama administration. But there he's gonna have the first Native American cabinet member which is really extraordinary as well. Um, but no Texans, to Gromer's point, you know, the, the thing about not really seriously contesting Texas, not playing in Texas, and then not winning Texas, is that you don't owe anything to Texas either. So in that sense, not much of a surprise. I think it would be a lot more of a surprise, and particularly with the country so divided at this point. For instance, as, as Gromer re- referred to that event uh, the night before the uh, primary in Texas, Joe Biden was there with Beto O'Rourke, who was the big star of that event, conferring his uh, support for, for Biden, and Biden that night, you'll recall, said, this guy is going to be in charge of my gun policy. Well, with the country as divided as it is now, and you know, tens of millions of people who support President Trump, maybe not even uh, accepting the outcome of this election, that is not a likely pick.
1: Brian, let's talk a little bit now about what started already as a story, but will continue to be a huge one, and that is the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, the big question in my mind, guys, and, and I think in everyone's mind is when
4: can I get the vaccine? And I think that's how this story is going to pivot. That's where the focus is going to be going forward. So I think there will be a lot of um, attention paid to the rollout of the vaccine itself, and the Biden-Harris administration has to do everything possible to pick up the baton from the Trump administration and make sure this vaccine rollout goes as smoothly as possible. And if it does go smoothly, they'll be off on a a very good foot.
2: The question also is, will, will the public, some of the public that has distrust for for the vaccine, actually trust it and take it. It's a record pace for the vaccine. Mumps, I believe, the vaccine for the mumps held a record before and that took more than two and a half years, I believe. So this, you're gonna have to get people to buy into it and then, you know, really hit hit the logistics really, really on point in order to get this to work the way you want it to work. Or well, the vice fast president fast. Did, get yeah. That, yeah. did
1: get the vaccine, and the president-elect is expected to next week. Uh, Gromer, I want to stay with you. The Georgia runoff in the Senate, I mean, that may have so much to do with the future.
2: Yeah, because it will dictate who controls the Senate. If the Democrats can win two of those seats, they'll get controlled by virtue of the uh, vice president being able to cast the, the tie-breaking vote. So a lot of stake, a lot of, you guys know, the center of the political universe now politicals on both sides, surrogates on both sides, uh, stomping through Georgia, making their case.
1: And the future now of President Trump, what happens to him, what does he do next in his base? Brian, we'll start with you.
4: That's the question I think everybody has, Julie, is it what is he going to do? Is he going to be some sort of um, shadow president um, who, who's always um, kind of nipping at Joe Biden's heels or is he going to go off and do something else maybe start a TV network? The other question is how much legal trouble is the president going to have once he doesn't have the office of the presidency to protect him and and what happens to his base Julie? does it um, Does it stay as energized or does it just kind of fade away. All major questions going forward into 2021.
1: Todd, what's your feeling on this from Washington? What's the sense you're getting?
3: I think that's an excellent point that President Trump faces all kinds of uh, legal jeopardy going forward from the New York Attorney General, maybe some U.S. attorneys around the country. A lot of questions about his uh, his taxes, his financial practices and his personal life, which have nothing to do with his presidency and also are outside the, the scope of any potential preemptive presidential pardon that he may confer on himself. So that that's a big question mark. But meanwhile, in the last six weeks or so since the election, uh, he has raised hundreds of millions of dollars, which he will be able to use, I and mean, he's, he's raised most of it under the guise of, I need this to pursue this election, fraud litigation, which of course is full of fabrications, but he has this enormous war chest going forward that either he could use to run himself in 2024 or to mess with people in primaries or play kingmaker. And it's it's a big reason why we have only, even now, even after the Electoral College, has certified formally that President-elect Biden is the president-elect and won by a very large margin, that we've only seen a few dozen Republicans in Congress come out and accept that result and acknowledge that President Trump was defeated because they remain afraid of him and what he could do to stir up his base of support against them, perhaps, in in the, the 2022 primaries.
1: Brian Curtis, Todd Gilman, you are both not only friends of our show, we consider you part of the show. So we're really happy to have you in our last show of 2020. We wish you a happy new year, and we really can't wait till you're sitting here with us.
0: Uh,
4: Likewise. Same to you guys. Thanks for having us.
0: Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall this fall announced her intention to step down at the end of the year. And just before the holidays, the city named her replacement. Eddie Garcia was selected from a list of seven announced finalists and becomes the first Latino chief of the Dallas Police Department. He started his career in San Jose, California in 1992 and served as the city's police chief for the last five years before retiring earlier this month. He will inherit a department trying to slow the rise of violent crime in Dallas. Garcia visited with NBC5 anchor Vince Sims last week.
5: So I
6: want to start out... How would you describe your style of policing?
5: I'm a hands-on chief. Uh, you know, I support uh, the work that the men and women do uh, that wear these uniforms across our country uh, because I've done the work myself. Uh, and I'm very supportive, uh, and I like to think I'm collaborative. Uh, but again, you know, I'm, I'm fairly uh, set on reducing crime, taking the, how that, however that is, taking the criminal element off the streets of our cities, uh, as well as building strong communities. Uh, Those two concepts are not mutually exclusive. Uh, And as police chiefs uh, around the country, those are those are the two major overarching uh, goals that we should have.
6: Now, Chief, Dallas's homicide rate, it's up, as is there in San Jose's. What were you doing there? And is that anything to address that that you would likely bring here? We could see you do.
5: Well, there's some things that we can do. We have to be data driven. Uh, In San Jose, you know, we work a lot with our community as well. Uh, We need to understand what the root causes uh, of areas uh, in Dallas, such as San Jose, that have been hotspots for a very long time. Uh, We can't arrest our way out out of a problem. Uh, There are uh, ways that we can reduce uh, violent crime, but we also have to work with our community, with our city, with other services uh, to truly uh, delve into the causes of violence uh, in our communities. Uh, But certainly we need to have our officers uh, proactive. Uh, We need to have them uh, taking the criminal element off the street. We need them to be visible. Uh, We need to ensure that uh, we're fair to our officers in light of everything going on nationally with regards to reform. Uh, We need to ensure that the officers feel that they're being treated fairly as well, uh, that the process is fair to them and to the community also, so that we can have uh, that proactivity that we're gonna need uh, in our cities, particularly in Dallas, uh, to help deal uh, with the, the spikes.
6: And across the nation in Dallas and as you saw in San Jose, we had the protests that happened this summer. And here with the Dallas police, there were some issues with the less lethal uh, forces that were used, some of the same things you faced there in San Jose. Um, How would you like to address like what happened there and what you would like to see as you come here?
5: No, it's a great question. And listen, what I'll say this is that our goals, Uh, that we had in San Jose and the goals that we should have in every city and the goals that I would have in Dallas in those type of incidents is that we want to ensure uh, the safety of our community. Uh, We want them to be free from violence. We want to ensure the safety of people that are uh, practicing their their rights to protest. Uh, We want to ensure that our police officers are safe safe as well. Uh, Those are the overarching goals. Uh, The tactics uh, may need to tweak. Uh, I know the things and the incidents that I saw in San Jose I really hadn't seen in the 30, nearly 30 years that I've been there. And so we evolved uh, as, uh, as the protests evolved as well. And we changed tactics uh, during and changed policy with regards to taxis- tactics as well. Uh, did we do everything perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, there's areas to grow, and we will get better. Uh, San Jose will get better, and I'm hopeful that we will, we, we not hopeful, we will get better as well in Dallas in the response. And so uh, my, my answer is that, you know, our tactics may tweak, but those initial goals that I set out with regards to community uh, individuals practicing their, their right to protest uh, and our officers' safety uh, will never change and should never change.
6: So what's your biggest priority when you arrive here?
5: Uh, well, my biggest priority when I arrive there is reducing violent crime. Uh, and, you know, you say that from a 64,000-foot level, but there's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, you know, you have to ensure uh, that you have buy-in uh, and you make sure that, you know, that your officers uh, that are out there, uh, you're both, your sworn and your civilian staff, uh, they're part of the process that you're there, that you're explaining to them why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, but there's no secret that that's the thing that we're going to have to tackle, and we're going to have to do that collectively um, with our rank and file, uh, with the entire department and with the community, uh, and we're and we will get there.
6: All right, Chief. Finally, but not least, how do you feel about the Dallas Cowboys?
5: Oh, I tell you what. Listen, uh, being out here in the Bay Area, I tell you what, my little moral victories. But the fact that uh, number one, I've never gotten over the catch, uh, and the victory over the hometown here Forty Niners uh, made my made my season. It was a moral victory. I was very happy for that. So, uh, and I know my entire my kids were felt the same way. So. I'll, I'll be. I'll leave it on a positive. We, gotta, we got some growth that we got to do, but uh, I was happy with last weekend. My two favorite teams are the Dallas Cowboys and whoever the 49ers play. So I got a double whammy uh, last week.
6: All right, Chief Garcia, thank you very much for your time, and welcome to Dallas.
5: Thank you very much. Looking forward to it.
0: Garcia is expected to start February 3rd. Check out all of our coverage on his career and the city's search for a new chief at NBCDFW.com. Thanks to Brian Curtis and Todd Gilman for joining the show this week. And thank you for hanging with us as we launch this new venture. We'll continue to do our best to improve it as we move forward in 2021. Don't forget, you can stay up to date with everything on Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Happy New Year, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.